The Cloud Returns podcast covers all types of software investing, whether seed, venture capital, growth equity, private equity, debt, and even the public markets. So I'm excited to have Akash Bajwa from Early Bird VC. They're a European venture capital firm with 2 billion euros under management, and they invest in the seed and Series A. And Akash, do you want to give a little bit more background about yourself and your firm? Definitely, Matt, and big fan of your Substack. So thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so a few words on myself. I've been investing or working with early stage companies for several years now, initially on the corporate venture side in banking to now spending more time in growth investing before I joined Early Bird. And I've been at Early Bird now for two years and straddle really two of our key verticals, which is fintech uh, and enterprise software. We are a pan-European early stage firm. I sit in the London office, which we opened two years ago. The firm's been around for quite a while, 27 years. So we're one of the first funds to get going on the continent. And we've really prided ourselves throughout this time for sticking to what we do best, which is early stage. And for, that, for us, that means pre-product market fit or in other words, pre-seed, seed, and series A. And we've been quite lucky to work with some great companies over those years in UiPath, N26, Ivan, and others. As you mentioned, we manage two billion, two billion of assets across the firm, and that's across a few strategies. And we invest out of our early stage fund at those pre-seed, seed, and series A stages, but also have a growth vehicle to support our companies all the way to the exit. And in terms of investment criteria, we look at enterprise software, fintech, and deep tech or frontier tech, as you might call it too. I tend to spend a lot of time in application software within enterprise software. And for us, nothing is too early. So we even look at what is now called inception rounds in exceptional founding teams and markets that we believe have secular tailwinds. But then as we go later to seed and series A, we look for early customer validation or by series A, some evidence of channels that scale. And that zero to one journey is really where we add the most value and try to be the most additive investor on the cap table. And so in terms of like check sizes and, and then I guess... This might not always apply at like the inception stage, but like what range of ARR if they do have any ARR? Yeah, for check size, we um, can go as high as 15 million, but I'm sure we'll talk about this. Of course, rounds have been getting smaller. Companies are fitter now, so we can flex to what the needs of the companies, companies are. Obviously, category by category that can differ, but... Typically for a seed or pre-seed, that's in the two to five million range. And then series A can be, yeah, as high as 15. ARR is typically something we look at much more at the series A. Seed, I think, is still the kind of elastic stage where you have everything from one design partner that's converted to a few decent logos that you sign and I think the goalposts are shifting quite a lot at the moment. Most downstream investors also acknowledge that Series A and Seed quite fluid. And within two standard deviations, you're looking at a completely different profile of company. 
And so we're all kind of scratching our heads thinking, are we taking the right amount of risk? We're getting paid to take that kind of risk in terms of ownership and ability to underwrite the path to graduating to the next stage. So without getting too philosophical on that, I think that's definitely fluid in the current stage we find ourselves in, in the economic cycle. Yeah. And it makes sense at the, at the earliest stage, it's not really a, a function of multiples or, or financial metrics per se, but still always interesting for, for people to get a feel for the market. So I imagine you're spending a lot of your time on AI. What are you finding exciting? What are you liking about, you know, founders there, any particular focus areas, just kind of like, what are you seeing in AI and what do you like about it? Yeah, it's definitely been the majority of my time, I'd say in the last 12 months. And that's, of course, all the way from the foundational model layer to the application layer, we've been like every investor really evaluating how we see this market shaping in the next few years or really trying to backcast from the future. We do have an investment at the foundational model layer in Aleph Alpha, just like OpenAI and the others that um, your listeners would have heard about. This is a European play that we believe is going at it in a slightly different way. They're trying to sell to enterprises directly and have a end-to-end -end offering. So also providing the support in terms of implementation to get use cases into production. So that layer of the stack is somewhere where we already have exposure. We move up the stack and then we look at infra or tooling as well as application software. And even there, I think we continue to refine our views as often as we can in a sort of Bayesian way, as we collect more information about the developments of the space, we try to sharpen our investment thesis and, and really sharpen our pencils. So at the infra and tooling there, what you've seen is all the hyperscalers have released a lot of tooling themselves. You and I have both read similar CIO surveys around their default posture to go to the hyperscalers to get some kind of co-pilot use case into production or custom agent into production. I think at AWS reInvent, there was a pretty good presentation from AWS speaking to the range of infra um, services they provide to cater to concerns around hallucination, output guardrails and so forth. So the question at the infra layer for us sort of becomes what isn't on the roadmap for the foundational model plus cloud hyperscaler bundle, and therefore, what is the surface area that's left for startups to build upon? And that, I think, still seems to be becoming smaller and smaller as, we, as time passes. We continue to observe that space with a lot of excitement because we are talking about platform shift of really huge proportions, but still not history doesn't always repeat itself. It, it rhymes in some ways. And then as we move up into the application layer, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but we are just trying to determine if we want to see AI expertise in founding teams or we want them to be AI aware. So if you're building um, application software, we know that typically it's been mostly about distribution and go-to-market savviness as opposed to some moat in the product itself. That's the historical paradigm. And we don't see any, any reason for that to change going forward. 
yes, on the one hand, you need to know how developments down the value chain affect you in that, you know, you have to obviously optimize across, across dimensions like cost, latency, accuracy, new model architectures and so forth. But the barriers to implementing state of the art architectures or models are collapsing and they'll continue to collapse. So what I think that renders is that the composition of strong founding teams at the application layer won't be that different to what has been the case historically, which is teams that have demonstrated an ability to execute on go-to-market. And that's only more acute when you look at vertical software. So we believe now there's some flywheels that can get going with data and feedback data specifically to make vertical specific models or use case specific models more performant than higher cost and more generalizable models. And the ways to get that delta in performance are of course faster scaling. As you scale faster and you've built the right feedback mechanisms in, you ought to eventually carve out some kind of meaningful outperformance against competition. And the way to get that is of course then the teams that have that either that network or that ability to execute on a go-to-market playbook and a channel mix that works. So those are some of the reflections we've had, but we acknowledge that, you know, if we look at mobile or the internet, that in 94, it would have been hasty to make too many predictions about things being foregone conclusions as it would have been in 2008 and, and so forth. So especially on the topic of new distribution channels, but I mean, we just see huge interest among exceptional founding teams to go after problem spaces with this new technology. And then I'm sure we'll continue talking about this through the discussion. But the question is, is it a sustaining innovation or a disruptive innovation? And a lot of ink has been spilled writing about that. There's a lot of good stuff in there. And kind of on your portfolio company at the foundation model level, it sounded like some of their unique proposition was incorporating services. And just in my feed yesterday, uh, experienced AI analyst was commenting about how very few pilots being done directly with the software companies, but a lot of interests and a lot of deployments going on through the consultancies and service providers. And like, kind of, can you share a bit more about uh, a model integrating services and how that's playing out for them? Yeah. So ultimately, um, if I step back and look at the role of services or consultants in getting any kind of transformation mandate off the ground, I think folks that have sort of, you know, got gray hairs and enterprise sales, they know how those, the services component is really the key unlock for newer vendors to penetrate for any innovation budgets to really get going and for use cases to move from pilot to production, which is where we are at the moment in, in that sort of trajectory for generative AI. And the foundational model players in the US, OpenAI, Anthropic, and others have also partnered with BCG and the likes, uh, McKinsey, Bain, and so forth for this very reason. Deloitte, PwC, Capgemini, these have all made announcements about huge teams that will be purely dedicated to AI transformation mandates. So our company, as well as others in this space, I think acknowledge that there's still a lot of sophistication that enterprises have to undertake 
in working with even one model, let alone this future state that a lot of founders are building for, where you'll have multiple models and enterprises will route between models. That's a market that will exist. There's a lot of problems that will bubble up to the surface eventually, but we're so early that the role of services and actually uh, helping otherwise less technical organizations get some kind of use case to be production grade, it can't be overstated. That's, it's extremely important. And it's not only about lead generation, but it's also working closely to identify what are the integration surface areas inside a company, what kind of training is needed, the usual bells and whistles that come with professional services. I think it's just as important for a technology that's still very nascent. So we're still, when we look at surveys around what use cases are actually getting traction, customer service and internal knowledge search are just early kind of front runners out of the gate. But there's just, an, the dam hasn't really broken yet. There's a lot more to come. And as has been the case before, uh, the consultants and the service component of delivering these use cases is going to be very, very important for us to sort of cross that chasm. Yeah. From like my vantage point, which is not as close as yours, is I've looked at foundation models as a bit of a black box. And, you know, if you're open AI or you're one of the hyperscalers, that can absolve a number of the concerns, but not all of them, because again, it is a black box and people don't know exactly what they're getting. But in the case of a startup, would you say having a services component helps de-risk the black box element and help your go-to-market? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I've even gotten to know some founders that are building for functions that I think a lot of observers, yourself and I, would have seen as like the clearest low-hanging fruit, like sales. So sales co-pilots have been all the rage in incubators or accelerators. By Combinator, there's a bunch of sales workers or sales co-pilot companies that have emerged and we see see those springing up because of obvious reasons that the lead up time to get a worker that is proficient or performant enough to put meetings in your calendar, generate leads is just very low. And so the barriers to entry are also very low. And we've seen founders that have tried to sell such solutions to the enterprise realize that it's it's completely different to sign to other tech companies. So services by way of giving the right amount of support and handholding to get those users accustomed to this new form factor is, is still going to be probably a prerequisite for some enterprises, especially when we're talking about swaths of enterprises that are less technical and have less technical IT teams or developers. It's still probably in Europe in particular underappreciated. Our company, UiPath, uh, when we invested in very early, enjoyed great success from services. If anything, so services was necessary to deliver its RPA solution to uh, its enterprise customers because at the time RPA was quite nascent too. So I'd say short answer that yes, we're seeing more startups incorporate services to their sales motion. It's probably going to be necessary for some time still, given where we are in terms of buyer sophistication, but it's, there's probably a lot more refinement to be had around how you price that, 
how you deliver that, how much is in-source versus outsourced, and even the degree to which you can use LLMs to deliver that service offering in a cost-efficient way. It's, a, it's an interesting inquiry, though, to, for someone to, to, to go after. Interesting. And then the, the other part of your answer was around like the founder type and kind of founder fit with a particular opportunity. And, and your emphasis was actually on GTM, which is you know, a huge challenge in SaaS and, and now AI. Like, what can a native AI founder have in terms of like a unique skill set or a hack GTM wise? So I think that in many ways, the same timeless lessons apply as to what makes a founding team compelling as for go-to-market savviness. So we know that OpenAI is releasing an app store or has a GPT store. And it's interesting to see people draw parallels with the Apple App Store, other new distribution mechanisms in the past. So I don't, I would not want to hazard a guess yet as to whether we'll see completely new distribution paradigms, whether just like search engine or mobile ads or the app store that AI will usher in a new distribution mechanism. If you assume there isn't a new distribution mechanism, the kinds of teams that have that go-to-market savviness simply need to figure out ways to make a certain channel work. And if they're very, very successful, like LinkedIn and some other companies have been, they'll make multiple channels work. Typically, channels tend to be power law as well, and you'll have one channel that really scales for you. And where I spend a lot of time, it's, of course, the channels with consultants, cloud alliances, and so forth. And even in Europe in particular, a lot of those lack the rigor to get the maximum output from those channels. Then on the direct sales side, it's going to come down to uh, the ability to effectively scale high-performing orgs, just like Frank Stupman has done and, and others have, executives have done in the past repeatedly in the Valley. In Europe, we're still very early in having those lieutenants who've diffused that world-class sales leadership throughout the ecosystem. So ultimately, I think it's about getting the top-down sales motion, which I think is going to have far more prominence now than the bottoms up PLG motions that we've grown to like in the last few years in software investing to be as uh, rigorous as they can be. And for those founding teams to have the networks in those industries to have unique insights as to what that composition should be between direct sales, a channel mix, alliances, and for the long tail, some kind of self-serve bottoms up motion. It's really rare that you'll find a team that has both that product-led mindset, so that intimacy for what product is needed by the end user, as well as how to reach that user in a cost-efficient way. So founding teams that combine these attributes in the same way that this would be my answer five years ago, I think still holds true today. Uh, so at least I'm of the view that this is a fairly timeless principle and that for AI native companies, it shouldn't change too much. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing is if you look at SaaS 
and how transparent the overall industry is. It's amazing how many people will go to a conference and share their playbook and go on podcasts and tell you everything they're doing. And it's lent itself to very much, you could pursue a paint by numbers approach to building your company. Do you think like the way to build an AI company will be quite similar to SaaS or will there be some unique nuances to it? Yeah, I think the there's a lot of debate about the PL of a scaled company from this vintage onwards, of a scaled software company. So if we assume we're still talking about software that does work, which ultimately, let's say until now, if we want to demarcate software pre-2024, pre-LLM inflection and post, a lot of people are drawing this demarcation where software was augmenting workers and enhancing productivity or cutting costs and so forth. So ROI that was measured in a way that it was additive. And now we have this notion of workers that essentially sell work. And you then look at large portions of your OPEX and look at what parts are addressable for production grade AI workers to take over from human workers at a fraction of the cost and it obviously does really change what your margin profile might be at scale. And that is obviously then being somewhat offset by a collapse in barriers to creating software and then higher CACs. And it's an ongoing debate that I'm sure we're all sort of, sort of navel gazing about because no one really knows what the amount, what the, each of these forces, the degree of those forces and which is a more powerful force than the other. But going forward, I think you'll definitely see, and I've already spoken to many founders who take a different view on marketing. They don't need to hire marketers early. They may eventually seek to hire a head of marketing, uh, but they know they can get the output of several people and replace a lot of the seats that they would typically pay for marketing software with a lot of the generative AI uh, products that are out there now for marketing. So I think it, it definitely first will touch go to market and, and that sales and marketing expense line. And ultimately, it also affects pricing too. So what we attribute to software as being so attractive is, is obviously the recurring nature of the revenue. And if we do move to a seat-based model to some kind of consumption-based model, but even fast forward to now, a model where we price on the basis of output, some kind of work that's generated, I think we're still really working through where this will apply, but in those cases, you'd have to wonder if you can really bake in minimum commitments or have some semblance of predictability to that kind of revenue. So there's a lot of nuance there. You'd have to look category by category, front, middle, back office, where this pricing paradigm is most likely to change. But that does leave a lot of the PL of a software company in 2028 arguably quite transformed. Yeah. And one thing that's enabled like this whole industry to keep growing and growing and attract so much capital has been the gross margins, right? Like 80%, 75% gross margins, arguably higher, um, depending on how you look at it, you know, secretly underpin how everything works. And if that were to come down to 50% and now, you know, we might have margins decrease decrease, but you might be addressing a bigger TAM, 
more of the OPEX and your gross profit dollars as opposed to margin increases. But if if margins go to 50% in software or however we think about AI plus software, does that really challenge your return profile? So the interesting thing about venture, especially in the last several years, has been, you know, there's been a notion of the greater fool theory whereby early stage investors were happy to have their companies be marked up by later stage investors. And then later stage investors had a wonderful IPO window where the public markets were happy to give them DPI as well. So ultimately the declaration of whether 50% margins are changing our return profile is sort of really going to be decreed by the public markets. And, and then that sort of trickles down all the way to us early stage investors. And I think the question, the way I would probably flip that back is to think about which companies would be immune to this. And if this is so ubiquitous that margin compression happens across the board, whereby 70% margins, the kinds of margins we've, we've had some generational companies enjoy for a decade or two, are completely gone or are just very difficult to sustain in this environment where you have point solution after point solution chipping away at some module that is part of your platform or a, an AI worker can do more or less the same, provide the same level of service or output that one of your software products does with a, with a human. So I think the question for me becomes if 50% margins is where we revert to as a sort of mean around or the industry in general sees margin compression and therefore we just recalibrate and ascribe higher multiples to 50% margins versus 40% margins. So if there's a complete re-rating of margins in general, that's what I'm wondering. And I also don't have the answer to this, but I would just wonder if there are really going to be pockets of software that will be immune to margin compression for these secular forces that we're foreseeing now. And if not, then there'll just be a re-rating of what's deemed best in class. It's an interesting yeah, viewpoint. And, and a lot of this will come down to, like, as you're talking about, like if you're selling true automation and true outcomes, you know, if you, if you price that on ROI and, and the value creation, you might very well be able to enjoy the margins, but then it will also get back into like another big topic I'm sure you're looking at are like barriers to entry and defensibility in any of these categories. And right now when you're doing due diligence and looking at an opportunity, like what are some frameworks you're using to assess like how defensible a particular product category might be? Yeah. And the thing that, I mean, the lens I'd say I apply to this, Matt, has always been given that I look at application software, that it's mostly down to execution. I think a lot of the seven powers that, application software companies enjoy come at scale. So if I think about branding or, or process power or even switching costs, I think of those as forward-looking things. And in the early days, I try not to have a sen false sense of security about barriers to entry for a founder that I'd be working with because um, I think time and time again, we've seen markets that seem saturated and it would have made ostensibly no sense to fund a new company in, but a 
excellent founding team with a great vision, a insatiable hunger to address that uh, and market has been able to carve out enough market share by sheer force of execution. So I tend to ascribe more importance in the early days to execution abilities and that maybe some innovation on business model, some subsidization in the early days to beget scale, at which point you then dial up pricing power again in vertical software. But we, of course, also like this notion that there's a cold start problem where there's a period where uh, you're building up critical mass of market share. But once you surpass that, let's say 10% in tight market, published some good data on this. Once you surpass 10% in a local market, you get to that quasi industry standard sort of scale where you have um, incredible word of mouth and a lot of the benefits that incumbent software enjoys where, you know, if, if someone's asked what software should I use for my ERP, NetSuite enjoys amazing mindshare among CFOs. So there's a certain critical mass that we underwrite a company towards where we think eventually this, the word of mouth and the, and the organic growth becomes so powerful. But the lead time to that critical mass is, I think, mostly down to execution. But then eventually, yeah, we, we do. The, I think AI will amplify the importance of those softer things around branding. Open AI enjoys great branding power. If you really benchmark on other metrics, you might argue that you know it's neck and neck on quite a few things now. But branding and process power is also what's set ramp apart. Yeah, if you look in the in the U.S. on in that market, so and then switching costs. At least early days, as we've looked at how vendors have reacted to LLMs touching their product suite, it looks like integrations and building in adjacent workflows is is the most obvious uh, route to go down. So having a wide surface area of integrations catering to all the CRM integrations or HCM or ERP, ITSM integrations so that you become really, really difficult to rip out without causing a lot of disruption to the business. And the workflows that allow you to touch multiple stakeholders and not just do the work, but also collaborate on the work or communicate about the work between lawyers, between finance professionals and so on. These sorts of things, I think, are still what help with switching costs and lock-in. But I w in a nutshell, I would say it's early days execution power, but those teams need to have a viewpoint or at least belief about what kind of seven powers or switching costs they'll enjoy at scale and what they're building towards. Interesting. And, you know, seems like execution is the key theme, particularly when you're looking at these early stage. When you're actually meeting with these companies, when you're they're going through fundraising, like how do you tease out their execution ability? Like what questions do you ask? What do you look at? Like what evidence could a founder looking to raise money from early bird, like prove out that they have got good execution skills? So a lot of it is evidence in their past typically. And it's why you have this second time founder premium, which is observed everywhere. Uh, you also can quickly reference people if they've worked at scale ups that are well known. Usually those networks are quite dense and you can quickly figure out the kind of forward momentum somebody's had in their career to date, what achievements they've had. And, and so the past is usually a good indicator. When you look at what they've achieved, even with their current company, 
I think a lot of things are quite revealing. How they go about interviewing, what is their learning rate? How quickly do they learn from customers and the insights they glean and apply that to the roadmap for the product that they painted? How it affects their thinking on go to market? How quickly they iterate on um, feedback from customers? This already for me is a very good leading indicator of someone's ability to ship products in the sequence that they need to be shipped to build the platform to be able to reach customers with scalable channels or find so messaging market fit is also something which for me presages channel market fit so if you've already found a pitch for your value prop that buyers are getting super excited about are telling you they'll pay for they'll pay a handsome amount for that already tells me that this this founding team has really iterated on a line of messaging that that they've refined to get to this point where uh, they can already gauge ACV potential and so forth. And then the, obviously the execution that comes thereafter is actually shipping a product that meets those messages. So I think even very very early, you can get a lot of good indicators in how. They prepare to go after a market, how much they've gone, gone down the idea maze and looked at the graveyard of companies that have come before. So if I was to really summarize, I'd say it's the level of diligence that they've done into that market, why the why now makes sense. And the thoughtfulness will be probably reflected in number of interviews they've done, people they've spoken to, subject matter experts and so forth. So that's the that's very much to, to do with the current company. And then if you combine that with their prior achievements, I think that gives you quite a quite an accurate estimate of their execution abilities. And I think there's a gem in there about the graveyard. Like, can you say a little bit more about founders who go explore that graveyard? Yeah. And you know, full credit to I think Chris Dixon or, or Gary Tan, who first spoke about the idea maze, but for founding teams that we like to back, we like them to think as deeply about their market as, as we'd like to, and of course, much, much deeper than we'd like to. And I think it's very difficult to have conviction in your why now if you haven't seen the previous epochs of attempts that have been made at that market. It's not the first time that someone came before Procore to target construction and in other verticals too, that have typically been very, very difficult to penetrate. There would have been so many lessons to be learned in messaging that failed or a form factor for your product that failed or any number of missteps that previous companies have made in trying to address the same buyer, the same enterprise, the same end user that it would be just simply wasteful not to take all those learnings. So I think that graveyard, if you really go there with a mindset to be a sponge and really learn as much as possible from uh, what didn't go right and what did go right, it's probably the most invaluable source of knowledge for setting your company up for success and having real belief in your why now that you can get more so than speaking to anyone in the present moment. because if you have that dynamic time series view of how things have evolved in that market, I think it's um, that's quite formidable. 
that's interesting. And this, this might be a little too tactical as if you're a founder listening to this, like, are there ways to do this? Like where you should go into Crunchbase and search construction software and find ones that have failed. Same thing on product hunt. Like, how have you seen founders pursue this? Or is it just deep Googling? Like, Yeah, I'd say in general, founder communities tend to be quite tight knit. And generally, there's a mindset of paying it forward. And in that respect, folks that are aware of companies that have come before them in a specific market would, I think, be quite warmly received if they reached out to companies that they can find. Yes, they can find them on Crunchbase. They can find them. They'll probably learn about those companies in a number of ways. But for me, the bigger issue is can they get in front of those founders, those former founders of those companies? Can they get in front of former VPs of sales? Can they get in front of the people who were at the coalface seeing what went right or didn't in that company's trajectory? And in general, I don't really sense any reason why those previous builders wouldn't share that wisdom, share those learnings, because at some stage, they also felt, felt a burning desire to solve a problem for that end customer. For whatever reason, it didn't work out. But normally, I sense a spirit of paying it forward to let the next generation of entrepreneur take on that baton, maybe, and go an, anew with those insights. So uh, tactically, I think it's the, the issue is less discovery. Uh, the problem is, can you get in front of the right people. And that I think would generally be more successful than founders think and people would be quite candid and comfortable sharing, I think a lot of those learnings. So like adding this all together, it seems like the themes here are like iteration, learning curves, resourcefulness, drive, passion, and that like graveyard is, is an interesting proxy for all of that. Yes, yeah. and when they graduate past the series a or when we start to also obviously invite growth investors and later stage investors to the to the company then it's about scaling a lot of these foundations but in laying these foundations i think it is coming down to a lot of softer things interesting and like another kind of popular take recently has been okay ai is going to lower the barriers to software creation there's going to be a lot of co-pilots that make coding easier or even non-technical people can code and that seems to have a lot of implications for vertical software what are your views there on how like lower barriers to entry might or might not impact the vertical categories yeah i'd say when you look at the usability of vertical software, I think most people would admit that shipping a prototype that is on par or has parity with uh, a lot of the leading vertical software companies is not going to take months and months of work. So most people would concede that. What I think people are neglecting or downplaying in this discussion is vertical software has never really been about the product. It's just been about distribution and go to market. Could you get your product in the hands of enough users where it was fundamentally often digitizing a manual process. And that is the single hardest challenge for any net new vendor to, to crack. And so for vertical software, I think even though their products might come under quite significant threat and might even pale in comparison to the consumer grade experiences that new founders might build, what those founders will struggle with the, the, the newer cohort of 
uh, budding vertical software founders is obviously the capital intensivity of going after an end market that already has a de facto industry leader. And it may be that in a RFP or some kind of tender, your products ranks much better on several dimensions, but it'll take a long, long time for you to unseat a lot of those network effects and that those scale uh, economies of scale that the incumbent vertical software vendor enjoys. So in general, this debate about lower barriers to software creation and how it will affect different categories of software, I think is definitely worth having. But in vertical software, I personally am of the view that the success is attributable to go to market uh, rather than products. And I wouldn't doubt that you could launch a similar multi-product suite to most of the vertical software vendors that are out there. What they have is they've become compounders. They're at the scale where a lot of their, I would say, armies of business development people and the uh, entrenched network effects that they enjoy are very difficult to unseat. And it would be quite capital intensive to go after. Uh, that being said, there are still many, many verticals that are underpenetrated. And you've seen this with even up, of course, in a very specific segment of law in injury claims. It's completely blue ocean before they embarked on it. And yeah, they may invite some competition now, but going to be very, very difficult to unseat that proprietary data set too, which we haven't touched on, but is also very important. So in general, just to summarize, I think it's difficult, although you can release a product that has parity with what the vertical software incumbents uh, provide, it's very difficult to still go in hand-in-hand combat, combat on, on the go-to-market side. This is interesting. It, it seems like a recurring theme here is capital intensity. Like if gross margins go down, that means more capital will be needed. Attacking, you know, pretty much most categories are established. And so attacking them will require capital just from a funding all to go to market. And then in general, we've been looking at, you know, AI from my vantage point is, is much more capital intensive, like where we're seeing seed rounds. I just saw one in Japan for a language model, $30 million seed round. And that has like huge implications for like the venture industry when you look at, you know, fund sizes and AUM that the venture model might not really work all that well in the context of AI. Like, what are your views there on the capital intensity and what that means for investors like yourself? Yeah, I, I think the writing is somewhat on the wall in that. At every layer of the stack, it varies a lot. In the foundational model layer, the cost of compute, especially as you get into a bit of an arms race with your competition, is is so capital intensive that it really rules out everyone short of strategics or capital agglomerators. Another term that uh, a fellow writers, Kyle Harrison, has has coined, but Outside of those multi-stage funds that accumulate AUM and big strategic uh, of capital, it's really hard to make the math work for early stage pure play funds, primarily because we, you know, we typically reserve half of the fund to follow on in these companies. 
But at the moment where we're seeing the cost curve of these models in terms of continuing to invest in the next generation and the next generation and so forth, it's not asymptoting. It's far from asymptoting. It's continuing to spiral. And obviously, compute is in short supply, as is the leading research talent. These are the two rate limiters, as well as data, that I think will continue to make this a bit of an arms race, uh, capital arms race. So for fundamentally, I think the foundation model layer is really ruled out for a lot of pure play venture firms. Uh, but you do see some massive scale platforms that have become also, in some cases, managers of other strategies, and they're not pure play venture firms anymore, maybe. And, and they have managed to invest a lot of capital here. But it, it is very difficult for pure play early stage funds to fit with the typical, within their fund size constraints to fund these companies. So I think they have to look up the stack and look at tooling or application software. Fascinating. And I, look, I think we've we've gotten a, a lot covered here. This has been a great episode. Uh, we'll definitely include your sub stack in the show notes. Where can people find you? Anything you want to promote? Maybe recap your investment criteria, uh, how to work with Early Bird, um, just so all the people who've listened can track you down after this episode. Yeah, thanks, Matt. You can definitely find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can also find me on, on X or, or Twitter. You can also find my Substack, and uh, I'm always happy to exchange notes about any of the topics we talked about today, about early stage investing, and uh, always keen to collaborate with operators or founders that want to just generally jam on go-to-market software. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much, Akash. This has been a great episode. Thanks, Matt.